Ernest, what's up? Look, in the world of personal finance management, finding the right tool is crucial. If you've been relying on Mint to keep your personal finances in check, I got a mix of news for you. Mint is closing down. But here's a silver lining. Monarch Money is stepping up as the go-to financial app and users, including myself, are making the switch with a smile. Before Monarch, juggling my finances felt like navigating a stormy sea. Other apps either lacked features or were too cumbersome. Then came Monarch Money. Its ease of use, powerful features, and sleek design turned financial management from a chore into a breeze. The constant updates, well, that's the cherry on top. But what truly set it apart for me was its collaboration feature. Money matters constrain relationships, but Monarch brings peace to the table. The app's collaboration tools allowed my partner and I to seamlessly manage our finances together. We aligned on our budgets, tracked our cash flow, and even planned our future goals all in one place. Speaking of goals, be it saving for a down payment, your dream vacation, or your children's education, Monarch simplifies it all. It's no wonder the Wall Street Journal hailed it as the best budgeting app. This isn't just an app. It's the next generation of personal finance management, ad-free, intuitive, and always evolving with you in mind. Now look, Monarch isn't just another app. It's the all-in-one solution. From effortlessly importing your data from Mint to customizing your dashboard to your heart's content, Monarch respects your privacy with a strict no-ads, no-data-selling policy. This is financial management as it should be, focused on you. Look, after trying Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated financial personal app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash leisure. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash leisure for your extended 30-day free trial. Earners, what's up? Look, as an entrepreneur, the dream is to earn a living doing what you love. But let's face it, turning that dream into reality is no small feat. That's where Kajabi steps in, transforming challenges into opportunities. I've been there, juggling every aspect of my business, wishing for a simpler way to diversify revenue and grow my brand. Then Kajabi changed the game. It's an all-in-one platform that empowered me to not just build, but thrive. With Kajabi, creating online courses, membership sites, and more became not just possible, but easy. And the best part? I kept 100% of what I earned, thanks to Kajabi's no-commission policy. But Kajabi isn't just about tools. It's about building a profitable business with the support of robust analytics, easy payment options, and customizable templates, all without needing a huge team or audience. Join me and thousands of entrepreneurs making six or seven figures on Kajabi, regardless of your audience size. If you're ready to turn your passion into profit, Kajabi is your next step to success. So what are you waiting for? Build, grow, and keep what you earn with Kajabi. Start your journey today. And right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash earn. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash earn. Kajabi.com slash earn. And join the entrepreneurs and creators who've made over $6 billion. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Head over there now. Earners, what's up? Look, this episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. What's the best way to help you and your finances thrive? The answer can be overwhelming with all the financial misinformation out there. Fortunately, you can turn to NerdWallet's objective finance journalists to set things straight and help you make smart decisions with your money. 
I can't front. The nerds have helped me get smarter about a few things, like planning my tax bills so that I don't dread April every year, or making a budget that's balanced, not just buying sneakers and fly clothes, or saving on travel because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night or maybe a five-star dinner, or boosting my credit score since we all know credit is like the real-life cheat code. The nerds also explain the real impact that the latest financial headlines can have on your life. You'll get the clarity you need to make smart decisions with confidence. Smart money is the smartest way to get even smarter about money. Let NerdWallet's trusted experts untangle today's web of financial misinformation. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Working with Jay-Z to build the Reform Alliance to get people out of prison. I was with Jay-Z in a, in, a, in a board meeting for the Reform Alliance. Now, I don't mean to be rude, but I know a lot about criminal justice stuff. I'm a lawyer. I've been doing this for 30 years. So the one place I don't have to worry about Jay-Z beating me. It's a home game for you. It's a home game for me. I'm not worried about Jay-Z. And this, this is my territory. So, you know, my team would come up with stuff and we were presenting. I mean, I knew my stuff was tight. I'm like, I'm impressing Jay-Z. I know this dude is proud of him. And after I finished talking, I, he just was looking at me. Just looking at me. And we've been talking about probation and parole and supervision reform and how we're going to pro- reform supervision so folks don't get sent back on pro- for no reason and, and change. And he just looked at me, he's just like, how many people in this room were supervised into being better? And the room got dead quiet. We're like, uh-oh. <laughs> uh he says, is anybody here? He's not the only billionaire in the room. It's a whole bunch of billionaires that he's helped organize, all in the room. And he said, did, did you, did you, did you, did anybody here get supervised into being better? Or did you get mentored into being better? All right, guys, welcome back. EYL, we're back home. And this is a very exciting episode for us. Yeah. We, um, we're into politics a lot. <laughs> and my mom's been watching. Our parents are doing the same thing. <laughs> they watch day. it like it's ESPN. It's, I, it's all they watch. <laughs> I, had a, I got an argument. Like we were doing our show, and I would argue like you're watching this show more than you're watching your son. <laughs> and I could do more for you than the people you're watching. Exactly. And so they started mixing it in. But you know, they, they, their daytime programming is politics. Yeah. So um, we have the man, the myth, the legend. Van Jones, so uh, serial entrepreneur, used to work at the White House, Mm -hmm. just got a huge uh, grant from Jeff Bezos that we'll talk about, best-selling author, uh, family man, that should have said that first, Mm -hmm. Um, and somebody that has just trailblazed, 
I just found out a story about Prince that I just found out yeah. uh, just now. So somebody that has been a leader uh, in thought leadership for a while and somebody that we kind of grew up watching on television. Mm. So it's always good to actually connect with people that you see on TV in mm -hmm. real life because uh, it's a weird it, dynamic. It, it, you hear the voice and it's like, <laughs> it's just, hey, you think they're about to cut the commercial. We, we, yeah, <laughs> but it's we not watched a, you for so long. I mean, currently on CNN, but mm -hmm. even from the standpoint where I went to see you live. Yeah, that's crazy. And I didn't realize it was six years ago, but brought my mom because she had to see you. Mm -hmm. And we ended up, you ended up posting me. Yeah, yeah, this is now a full circle moment. It is, it is a full circle moment. That was uh, we did the the We Rise tours right after Trump had uh, gotten elected. So we were going around trying to you know gather people up and and get people's you know hearts you know back pumping. And uh, we got a chance to be at the Apollo. Yeah. And uh, Cory Booker was there. Um, Victory Boyd, who's now a rising gospel star, she was it was her first time on stage. Uh, I got to interview Al Sharpton. Uh, but the crazy thing about it is we look back in a photograph that I posted had you in it. That's, this is true. This is didn't, true. Didn't know you at all. <laughs> and, and, and also, also by the way, you know, it's funny because you're talking about, you know, seeing somebody on, on TV. It's so much more intimate how I know you guys because you're in my ear. <laughs> the, you know, the podcast is not, I mean, TV is like over there. <laughs> the podcast is right here. You be on the little treadmill. Over there. <laughs> so, so just seeing you guys on, on the elevator, I was like, I was like cheesing because I was like, wow, well, it's like, and also you, y'all are much taller and much, <laughs> much, much stronger than I, I, I knew. Everybody uh, <laughs> like down has uh, dropped six inches off of our height. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think we're gonna do our next episode standing up. Hey, listen, y'all, y'all intimidate some folks. Like these dudes in the gym. I'm like, I gotta, I need to go get some, get some, some uh, barbells, y'all. <laughs> serious brothers, but, uh, I but, but I just want to say it, you know, it's, um, it's such a gift what you're doing. Thank you. Um, we've been hearing, uh, you know, we should own, you know, we own your own black man, you know, the, the, the bow ties and the bean pies and brother, what do you, but we don't know how. Right. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to wish it or want it or it dream it, the application. but it's how do you actually do it? And as somebody, I'm now in my mid fifties. Uh, I'm just now learning mm. a lot of stuff. And I've, I've you know, learned a bunch from you. I've got a chance to, you know, like you guys have a relationship with Robert Smith and stuff like that. And it's unbelievable how, you know, I mean, I went to law school. I went to college. I've, you know, I'm ra I've raised, you know, children. I got a grown son. And I'm still just now realizing the power of being able to use business uh, for, ch for, for social change to family change it's just it's it wasn't something that was really explained the way you guys explain it appreciate it thank appreciate you appreciate it so thank you we have a lot to talk about but for anybody that might not be familiar just want to kind of quickly go over your backstory how do you get into politics worked at the highest level worked at the white house mm -hmm. and um you know seeing cnn best-selling author people see your resume but mm -hmm. they might not know how that actually mm -hmm. happened so how does all of this happen to get to this point Ooh, well yeah, my parents, honestly. I mean... Did you always have a passion for politics? Like, this is what you knew you wanted to do? Yeah, because I was born in 1968. So it starts with advocacy side of it? It started with just just seeing what my, what my parents went through. Uh, I grew up on the edge of a small town in rural West Tennessee, Jackson, Tennessee. Uh, my father was born in Orange Mound, Memphis. Anybody who knows Memphis, Orange Mound is the hoodie hood, even to this day. That's where Eight Ball and MJG yeah. is from. Yeah, yeah. So my dad, my dad was born there, and you know, um, and you know, real, real poverty. In 1944, 
segregation, all that kind of stuff. So he, my dad saw the worst of it. I mean, just straight, inward, blah, blah, blah. Jim Crow. Jim Crow, for real. Mm -hmm. People act like that stuff was a thousand years ago. No, my parents were born in segregation. Not my grandparents, not my great-grandparents. My mom and my daddy were born in segregation. Uh, They were married under segregation. Not my great-great-grandparents, my mother and my father. And so, and I watched, you know, he had joined the military to get out of poverty. Now, this is when everybody's trying to get out the military. My dad tried to get into the military, went into the military, became a cop in the military, trying to get out of poverty, got out and put himself through college at a little black college called Lane College in Jackson, Tennessee. And he married the college president's daughter, my mother, because my dad was trying to make moves, right? Um, but automatically that just creates a lot of tension because my mom was kind of like the, the bougie side you know, her dad had been a college president, you know, she's an AKA and a link and all that kind of stuff. And my dad is still trying to get his family out of, out of the hood. Hmm. And pretty much everybody that got out of poverty in my family, one way or the other, got out of poverty on this bridge called my father's back. He, even though he's like working as a school teacher, he's constantly sending money back, trying to make sure people don't get evicted, trying to put, you know, put people into, into school. He put his little brother through college. He put a cousin through college. And when he died, the picture they put on the funeral program was him standing in front of Yale Law School the day I graduated with hands in the air. Uh, and, and what he was said to me was, you know, you're a ninth generation American. We've been here for nine generations. You're the first one in our family that was born with all your rights. You were born with your because those bills passed in 1964, 65. Mm-hmm. So I was born in 68 with my twin sister. So y'all were born with all your rights. And look at what you've been able to do in one generation to be able to go to a Yale Law School. So for me, much to his dismay <laughs> and frustration, I said, well, look, I've, I'm here. I've got the law degree. I'm 24 years old with dreadlocks and a law degree. I want to go. I want to help, you know, people like you did, Daddy. I want to, I'm, I'm, I'm suing cops. You know, I'm doing, my dad's like, wait, <laughs> you don't make some money? Like, he, wanted, he wanted you to work for a law firm. Yeah, he wanted me to go like, it's like, we didn't go through all this for you to go and be just as broke or more broke than your cousins. <laughs> I was like, no, Daddy, I want to be like you. And so I'm still in my mind for 30 years. I'm trying to catch my dad because he helped so many people when, you know, at that funeral, it was lines around the block for my father, black and white, because he had become a, a teacher and then he'd become an assistant principal. Then the NAACP sued our county so he could become a principal. Mm. And so he was like a black principal. Mm. And he took this, they gave him this like little shitty uh, middle school that was like the, 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 the scary middle school, like three housing projects beating into it, Jackson Middle. And he turned it from the worst to one of the best in the state. And he got like state awards as an educator. So when he died, there were white teachers, black teachers, white students, black teachers, students. I'm like, this dude started with literally zero and has helped this many people. Now he's put me in a position where I'm leaving Yale Law School. How am I ever going to catch him in terms of what I can do with my life? So I mean, I spent like, you know, 20, 25 years just trying to use my law degree to help people through politics, through advocacy, suing, suing the uh, uh, San Francisco Police Department, Oakland Police Department. Uh, we closed five abusive youth prisons in California, you know, building not-for-profit organizations that could actually help people. Um, and uh, as a result, I know how to build not-for-profit organizations. I know how to move policy, but I am only just now learning how to build businesses. I'm just now learning how to move capital because that's really at the end of the day, you know, what the game is about. And that's brand new, not just for me, for my whole family. 
is that's something that you know we don't know a lot about. Yeah. Uh, we've had maybe one or two guests that talked about the non-for-profit mm-hmm. side uh, of, of creating uh, organizations. Yeah. So what are some of those challenges that you faced, mm-hmm. I guess going back to maybe the 90s, mm-hmm. um, that you you actually see that prevalence still in getting in that space of the non-for-profit? You know, I, people come to me all the time now and say, you know, I want to start a non-for-profit organization. They want me to help them do that. Um, I really challenge them. Like, is that what's missing in our community? Like we don't have enough not-for-profits. We don't have enough charitable organizations. Is that, is that really where the, where the lack is? Um, people say, oh, I want to go to law school. Uh, you know, you went to, to law school, I want to go to law school. I'm like, really? Really? Is that, is, that, is that what you think? We don't have enough, we don't have enough lawyers. Um, you know, we've had lawyers going back to Thurgood Marshall. Uh, we've had lawyers, you know, we've had not-for-profits. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's good maybe for your first five or six years out of school just to kind of like give back and be grounded. But what we don't have is enough people who understand finance and technology. Mm. If you look at how power functions, there's four corners of power in this country. There's Washington DC, politics, bunch of lawyers there. I know that world, I come out of that world. But that's one corner. New York City, where we're sitting right now, Wall Street. Finance. I don't see that many black people doing that. And so automatically, you know, something is wrong because here we have all these black people in politics, public affairs, lawyers, senators, congresspeople. We've got a black vice president. <laughs> we got two black senators. The, the, uh, of the top 10 cities in America, seven have black mayors. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries is about to run all the Democrats in, in the House. I mean, we got a lot of black people in politics, public service, not for profit law degrees, but you get in the train from uh, D.C. and come up here to New York and go to Wall Street, you don't see as many black folks up here. Wait a minute, that's a problem. Then you hop on, a, on an airplane, go from New York City, uh, JFK, land in the Bay Area, SFO. Now you're in Silicon Valley. Technology. Very few of us in that world. Hold on a second. Trillion dollar industry is being launched. Mm-hmm. Biotech, uh, AI, uh, quantum computing, uh, but very few of us there. Then if you leave SFO, pop down to LAX and you're in LA, Hollywood. Okay, We're a lot, we have a lot of stars, but we don't own the studios. You have very few Tyler Perry's, very few Oprah's. So if we're trying to play a four corner game of power and all we have is a bunch of lawyers in the politics corner, but we don't have power in the finance corner, the technology corner, and the media ownership corner, then no matter how well we play the game, we're probably going to lose more than we win. So it's media, mm-hmm. finance, tech, and, and politics. Politics. Yeah, those, those are yeah. the four corners. Sure. And, and you can just see it on the map. D.C. is politics. New York is, is finance. Bay Area is uh, technology. And L.A. is, 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 is media ownership. So, and, 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 and most black folks are in politics and entertainment. But we don't own we don't the. Own. Yeah, we. You know, so Prince, Prince used to always tell me, uh, "Van, you're on CNN. You don't own CNN. I'm not impressed." <laughs> right? That was how Prince would talk to us. That's how French would talk to each other. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So yeah, so uh, so you asked the question about it. What I would say is, I think it's time for us to start using business. It's time for us to start using investment. It's time for us to start using the power of the market 
to uplift our community as our primary strategy and then use not-for-profits as a secondary strategy. We've been in reverse. Mm. We've been primarily trying to go to politics, protests, not-for-profits to fix everything. Other communities, they don't do that. Other communities, they have businesses and they have a lobbyist to go to the, to the government to help their businesses. Yeah. We mostly have a bunch of lobbyists with no business to help. Well, That's was, not going to work. I was talking to somebody... Um I think he's from Congo, but he was talking about the whole continent of Africa. And he was saying that charity is not going to solve Africa's problems. And that part. Like, Billions of dollars has gone into charity and it, it's, it's not doing anything. He's yep. like, only real infrastructure and business is going to change the things because he's like, the politicians, they can't get it right. Yep. It's going gonna, it's gonna to get mismanaged anyway. Mm-hmm. And when he, when he explained it to me, it, was, it made a lot of sense. Yeah. And I, I kind of see the same thing in America, mm-hmm. right? And that's why we started our platform because, like you said, I mean, it's not changing anything mm-hmm. to have lawyers. It's good to have it. Yep. It's good to have social programs. But ultimately, it just kind of keeps you at the same level that you're at. Look, the, the, everybody needs to vote. I'm not saying anything negative about that. But the ballot box is not where you can get what you want. The ballot box is where you can lose what you got. So mm. if you don't show up, you can lose what you've got. So we have to vote defensively to make sure they don't take more rights from us, take more stuff from us. But your that's your defensive strategy. Your offensive strategy has to be, what part of this economy do we want to own and control? Um, and, you know, part of the reason I wound up getting that big grant from Jeff Bezos has to do with me trying to figure that out. And it's amazing how one thing will lead to another thing. So I was trying to be a do-gooder, you know, trying to help people who don't have anything in our community. And you meet people, you know, you, 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 people who see you on TV or they, they, they hear about your work you're doing and they want to come, they want to help. And a lot of times people have, have, they have money, you know, they're, they're wealthy people. So Felicia Horowitz, who's an African-American woman. Yeah, it's been, been Horowitz. Ben Horowitz. Exactly. Yeah. Married to Ben Horowitz. Mm-hmm. Ben Horowitz is like the, big, you know, the biggest investment firm in, in Silicon Valley, the biggest investors in technology, the most successful in technology. Well, you know, this is a, a Jewish guy a, a, with a black wife. So these, they, they understand oppression. <laughs> they understand what's going on. And so Felicia Horowitz had it as her mission to try to get more of us involved in what's going on in Silicon Valley. And we're right there in California, not, not really noticing what was going on. So she's, you know, MC Hammer and Nas and myself and other people, she would bring over to the house and try to give us game. And Ben would try to give us game. And, you know, we were very hard-headed because, you know, it's like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm successful. I mean, and she's like, no, you don't understand anything <laughs> about what's going on in this state. And so over time, I started realizing, wait a minute, like we're, we're sitting here in California where billions of dollars are being made in technology. We're not uploading apps, we're downloading apps. When you're downloading the app, that means when you move your thumbs around, you're making money for somebody else. Uh, it's when you upload an app and somebody uses the app you uploaded, that's when you make money. Black people moving their thumbs around, making money for somebody else, that used to be called picking cotton. Okay, so we're like a bunch of digital cotton pickers out here, downloading other people's stuff, making money for them. And so I said, okay, I need to do something different. And then she introduced me to the people who run the Sun Valley Conference. And they invited me there. And that's where all the billionaires go once a year to talk and do deals and stuff. So I show up there with my eyeballs like about to fall out of my head because 
you know, there's Zuckerberg right there. There's, you know, all these names that you've heard of and they're just walking around, no staff, you know, just talking to each other, eating meals. And you start to realize, hold on a second. This is a whole community of people that are billionaires. It's not like one billionaire over there and one billionaire over here. They know each other. They speak the same language. Their kids go to the same schools. And there's very few of us that participated at that level. And so I realized, man, Felicia is really changing things by just even just the exposure. But then, I, you know, I would come out of it and I would feel depressed because, like, I don't know how this world works. Mm. And, you know, what am I supposed to do and how is it supposed to? And so you have to go through that whole period of just feeling disoriented Um and almost like a big dummy. Like I spent my whole life out here. Like it's like the Matrix. Yeah, you, yeah. You you got to see the other side. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack there. I mean, you brought up something that Robert Smith has talked to us about mm-hmm. about being on the wrong side of the equation. Yeah. Right. And so you when you're talking about uploading to to download, it's two different things. Yes. When you broke down that four corner analogy, I'm like, this is brilliant, mm-hmm. right? Because you come from the law. Yeah. We. You have entertainment media yeah. in a sense where you're Emmy award winning. Yeah. Work for CNN. But you, you're now seeing the tech sector. Yeah. Is this the inspiration now for Yes, We Code? Because when I'm hearing, I'm thinking you've now seen it, but your advocacy is how do I now invoke change? Yeah. And when we think invoking change, it always starts with the youth. Yes. And so this, is this kind of the inspiration for Yes, We Code? Yeah, you know, uh, it, it is. Uh, yes, We Code is something that, that Prince and I put together early days trying to figure out how to begin to make a difference in that sector. Um, and then, then it became Dream uh, Core uh, uh, Tech, and now it's Dream.org Tech. Uh, I'm now at a place where my visibility into what's going on is scaring me. Um, you, you start spending enough time with not with, with like these tech giants, you know, the people who are really, I mean, they're basically laying the groundwork for a, a different human civilization. I mean, you think about, uh, you mentioned being a family guy. Um, I have an 18-month-old baby girl, okay? Just to show you how technology is going to change her whole entire life. Um, her first crush in, you know, five, six, seven years, it's not, probably it's not going to be like a pop star or a rock star or, or, a, or a dashing cartoon character. It's probably going to be an AI. It's probably going to be an artificially intelligent being that she can interact with. Mm. Like, that's, that's not how we grew up. Uh, when it's time for her to have kids, given where biotech is going in 30, 35 years, she might just be able to open up her laptop and design my grandkids, okay? In 80, 90 years when she's buried, she might be buried on Mars. I mean, when you look at what's going on with private space flight, when you look at what's going on with biotech, what's going on with quantum computing, which is going to accelerate AI, these people are creating a whole new human civilization with, I didn't say million dollar, billion dollar, these are trillion dollar industries that are just getting started with very little black and brown participation. And so I look at that and I think to myself, okay, first of all, we need to take this seriously, not just, oh, AI is gonna take my job, AI is gonna, you know, they have racist robots profiling me. Okay, that's that we need to protect against the negative. But we're so oppressed man and traumatized uh and and hurt that we're very threat sensitive oh what's ai gonna do is gonna hurt me but we are not 
opportunity sensitive. How can it help me? How can I get on the ground floor? How can I experiment with these technologies and build the next Disney on my laptop? How can I actually use this, combine it with what black folks are great at? Look, look at what we've been able to create with literally nothing. We took two turntables and a microphone and took over the planet. That's not much technology. This technology, as creative as we are, if we're not scared of it, if we say, oh, we're going to grab it, use it, own it, own the future, own the future. And what's amazing to me is to see people who, because they don't come from that oppression, they don't come from that trauma. They just think it's their right to build the future. And we don't. Mm. And so we, even, we can't even call it racism yet because it's not like we're banging on the door and they're saying, no Negroes allowed. We're not even trying. If you're not banging on the door. You don't even know the door to bang on. Exactly. You don't even know the door to bang on. Yeah. So, you know, it's like, you know, like, like with Black Wall Street. Like Black Wall Street, we built Black Wall Street and they burned it down. Well, that's racism. But what if we never built it? What if we never even gave ourselves permission to build it? Is that racism or is that internalized self-limitation, oppression, trauma, and pain? And so what I'm saying is never will there be a bigger opportunity for black wealth creation ever, ever, ever than the next five to 10 years in the technology space. And even if you don't have an advanced degree in AI, there's going to be so many industries that built, are built around it and built into it. Whatever you're doing, you should be adding AI to it anyway. Um, and to me, I would have never thought this way. But Felicia Horowitz opened a door. I got a chance to meet people I would have never met. Uh, also, you know, Robert Smith opened the door. I got a chance to do stuff with him I would have never got a chance to do, you know, working with him and Jay-Z and those guys to build the Reform Alliance to help people get out of jail. I'm doing do-gooder stuff mm -hmm. as a lawyer in the not-for-profit space, but I'm meeting all these titans who want to help. And then rather than just writing a check, they're like, here, come here. Let me teach you something, Felicia Horowitz. Hey, let me come here, Robert Smith. Let me show you something. Just being around Robert Smith without him saying anything made me a better person. Just watching him and how he talks to his staff the level of respect, the level, the you know, he's not respect of you better do this, you better do that. He just, he's at this level and he expects you to be at this level. So even if you didn't know you could be at this level, all of a sudden you start, you know what I mean? He just, you just want to, just to be in the conversation, you come up with stuff you didn't even know you knew. Like, so being able to be around people like that, working with Jay-Z to build the reform alliance, to get people out of prison. I was with Jay-Z in a, in, a, in a board meeting for the Reform Alliance. Now, I don't mean to be rude, but I know a lot about criminal justice stuff. I'm a lawyer. I've been doing this for 30 years. So the one place I don't have to worry about Jay-Z beating me. It's a home game for you. It's a home <laughs> game for me. I'm not worried about Jay-Z. And this, this is my territory. So, you know, my team would come up with stuff and we were presenting. I mean, I knew my stuff was tight. I'm like, I'm impressing Jay-Z. I know this dude is proud of him. And after I finished talking, I, he just was looking at me just looking at me and we've been talking about probation and parole and supervision reform and how we're going to reform supervision so folks don't get sent back on for no reason and and change and he just looked at me he's just like how many people in this room were supervised into being better and the room got dead quiet we we're like uh oh <laughs> uh he says, is anybody here? He's not the only billionaire in the room. It's a whole bunch of billionaires that he's helped organize, all in the room. 
And he said, did, did you, did you, did you, did anybody here get supervised into being better? Or did you get mentored into being better? He says, why are you talking to us about fixing supervision? You should be turning all these programs into mentorship programs. I was like, oh my God. We've been working on this stuff for 20 years. Nobody had even realized you're basically polishing a turd. Like the whole thing from the beginning can never be fixed. This dude comes in and this is what the thing about black billionaires. You can be a white billionaire and just be smart in one direction. To be a black billionaire, you got to have genius on top of genius, wrapped up in genius, deep fried in some more genius. So you're going to be smart in so many <laughs> different sure. directions. Key word is deep fried. <laughs> deep fried in some well, more my southern folk. Yeah. And so, you know, just being exposed to these guys and how they think and how free their minds are. But also, you know, they don't let a lot of BS around them. You know, you have to be like a bionic crab if you're black. You know what I mean? Because to be that crab trying to get out of the barrel, you have so many people trying to pull you down. And also, you got to put so many people on your back from your community, from your family. You have to be a bionic crab. Well, that's what, uh, so we talked to Timberland. Yeah. And uh, he was saying that, he was like, you know, do you ever find it weird that like all of our billionaires is like Oprah, $1 billion. At that time, Kanye, $1 billion. Diddy, $1 billion. Jay-Z, $1.5 billion. Rihanna, $1 billion. He's like, everybody's like $1 billion, $2 billion. Robert Smith's an outlier, but even he's at $9 billion. You got random people that you never heard of, 37 billion, 58 billion. He was like, to me, Jay-Z is already $50 billion because he's like, he's so exceptional. There's no way yeah. he's only worth one billion. <laughs> exactly. Like he won every Olympic medal possible. There's no way that he's like, and the guy, like just a random crypto guy is worth 15 yeah. billion that you never heard of. That's 30 years old. So right. what you're saying is right and is true on a variety of different standpoints that the level of exceptional that you have to be mm-hmm as a yeah. black person, yeah. it's hard to articulate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because even the successful people in the grand scheme of things are not really mm-hmm. as successful as they should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they realize that this much they, they level still they have really like underachieved yeah. their counterparts right. relative to the level of success and that they've actually yeah. achieved or the influence that they've actually been able to It's, it's kind of like the, the Puff thing where we're, we're talking to Puff and he's like, guys, I'm, I'm in rooms that you haven't gotten to yet. Right. And then I still am kind of the outlier and I'm seeing things that I can't even explain yet. Yeah. Right. And so he's got to kick down doors for us to now come into the room. Yeah. But it, it, it's a fight that we're looking at him like this is the highest level. Mm-hmm. For so many years, we're looking at our entertainers and our athletes. This is the highest level, not realizing. So you that, realize that it's not. That it's not the it's highest level. It's actually like a, a lower level, yeah. honestly. But let me ask you this. As far as speaking to people at the highest level, Jeff Bezos. Yeah. I think he's the third richest person in the world currently. Uh, today. Today could change tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't, don't, don't 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 bet against him. Uh, <laughs> Never I would definitely, I. I definitely would. And, that, and that's divorce, by the way. He's third rich divorce. So that's and she is the f- <laughs> yeah. I think the third wealthiest woman yeah, in woman. America. So it's like yeah. so you, yeah. you, you you cut his in half. He's still number three. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk about that's this brand, but first, so you were awarded the Courage and Civility yes award um, in twenty twenty one. What is that? Can you kind of explain what that actually means? And then we can go into the grant. Um, you know, uh, Jeff Bezos and Lauren Sanchez, his partner, um, decided they wanted to give people some incentive for working across the aisle, working with different races, different political people, whatever. And, and, uh, because all the incentives are to not do that. You know, the incentives are the more you can put down the other side, the more attention you get, you know, the whole game. 
And so um, they decided to, to create this award as an annual award. It's $100 million a year. It's not to the individual. So it's not like I have $100 million now I'm a rich person. Like, so <laughs> no, that's like, not the like, thing they think. <laughs> yeah, Bro, not, you got a hundred. Let me borrow something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, don't call me. I got this idea for you. Exactly. <laughs> I, no, nobody's ever said that except Can everybody. I send you my deck. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. I'm like, I, I do not have $100 million. Not for me. Um, it's it's for charity. You know, it's to, to, to support charitable organizations. Basically, gave gave me the right to direct $100 million of his charity charitable dollars uh, to, to causes that, that I believe in. But you feel fit. Yeah, I feel fit. With with no board or oversight, I don't have to go back. And, and not handcuffed to me. Not sure. handcuffed, whatever. And it's really radical because, you know, a lot of times these billionaires, when they do want to do some some good, uh, they'll set up a big foundation and then the foundation's going to hire a bunch of people and they all went to college and they all have big, you know, student loans to pay off so they got to get big salaries and they got to all have laptops. And, they, and by the time you finish with all that, most of the money is paying for the foundation. Sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the people are not getting that much. We need to discuss this in Aruba. <laughs> 13-day retreat. Retreat. Exactly. We've got to redo our, our uh, mission statement. We're going to bring in 15 consultants for that. And you're just like, could we have 20 cents in the so, um, uh, so it was really radical uh, for him to do that, and uh, he also picked uh, Chef Jose Andres, and uh, and he picked Dolly Parton, and they're, they're going to pick some more. But what was so amazing about it to me was that um, the way it came about. Uh, I told you Felicia Horowitz, it you know got me in the room, and then I had a TV show called Redemption Project where we were talking mm -hmm. you know, to people who were you know formerly incarcerated people who wanted to, to make amends. And a woman named Diane von Furstenberg saw that show. Uh, she might be the only one that saw it because the ratings were terrible. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I watched it. So I was, Thank you, so, brother. Come you, on, you, you and your mom keep me alive. Yo, man, I'm trying to we gotta support each other, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, so uh, Diane von Furstenberg saw the show. And so I'm in this room full of like gazillionaires. And she walks right over to me. And she says, I love you. I love your show. Uh, I want you to meet someone. And takes me by the hand over to Jeff Bezos and Lauren Sanchez. Where's this at? This is at Sun, at Sun Valley. At this one, the same conference. It That's a billionaire year. conference. The billionaire conference. Ab, can you put that on the, the yeah. notes? <laughs> exactly. So this is like a Davos situation. Like a Davos type of situation. Exactly. World Economic Forum, Sun Valley, these kind of super, super, super exclusive events. And, um, you know, frankly, there's not that many of us there. And when you get there, it's a totally different culture. You, could, you may as well be on, you know, Neptune. It's like completely different, uh, you know, how they talk and, and how they interact. But... Instantly, this woman comes over and grabs me by the hand, and she's like the, the queen mother, which I didn't know at the time, of all Sun Valley. Mm. Everybody loves Diane von Furstenberg. And so all of a sudden, without me realizing it, again, doing good, this woman noticed me, and she took me by the hand directly to Jeff Bezos. And it's like people like, like trying to figure out, like, like, it's like double dutch. People trying to figure out when they can get in and say something, and she just walked, whoop, you should meet this young man. And so because she tapped me on the shoulder, he said, okay. And so, you know, we sat down and talked. And the good thing about it was uh, I was in a good place emotionally. Uh, I had some good therapy. I wasn't stressing out. I didn't have a whole big agenda. I didn't expect to meet him in the first place. And so we just started talking from the heart and uh, mentioned that I had left the Obama White House under fire from the right wing. Uh, which is a whole other part of my story. And then somebody who was overhearing it said, yeah, Glenn Beck, and started saying, saying bad stuff about people at Fox. And I said, hold on a second, Glenn Beck is my friend now. And Jeff said, what? 
I said, yeah, Glenn Beck is my friend. Glenn Beck, you got a good relationship with Glenn Beck? I do. I do. I don't agree with him on, on anything politically. But because he had been the person who had been so hard on me when I was in the Obama administration that I ultimately decided to, to resign. Because, what, what happened with this whole Obama situation? Okay, so I was working for Obama, and I was his, his, working on clean energy and that type of stuff. The right wing really wanted to stop Obama. They just hated him. And at that point, he's the most popular human ever born. You know what I mean? Like, he got a Nobel Prize just for inhaling and exhaling. I mean, like, you know what I mean? Like, just, I mean, just, just literally because he exists. I mean, it's never happened before in the history of the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, you know, 60 votes in the Senate. Uh, Pelosi ran the House for him. I mean, this dude is an unstoppable juggernaut. And so the right wing has to figure out, well, what can you do to stop this guy? So they try to analyze him. They can't do anything to him. They look at all his cabinet secretaries, just trying to find anybody with any kind of dirt. So they get all the way down to me. <laughs> I'm a special advisor. Now, I'm gonna, look, this is a, a show for business people. Just understand just one thing about politics. This, if you're going to meet political people, just understand one thing. The shorter the title, the more power the person has. Okay? President. Vice president. See what I mean? So the shorter your title, the more power you have. The longer your title, the less power you have. So if you're secretary of, you know, undersecretary, deputy undersecretary, the longer your title, less power you have. You know what my title was working for Obama? <laughs> my title. Green energy specialist. Hey, listen. Special advisor for green jobs, enterprise, and innovation at the White House Council on Environmental Quality. That was my title. <laughs> okay? So it's like I was one step above an intern. <laughs> and yet the media was so fascinated by having this black guy who's from the Oakland area who's doing all this stuff with the solar panels or whatever. I was mediagenic. So they had to short me down to green job czar. The mm. czar. 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 Ooh. Czar. Once they said That's I was a czar. That did it. That was a putting a bullseye on my forehead. <laughs> and so Glenn Beck then decides, okay, I'm going to get this guy. I found him. I came all the way down to the special advisor level. And here's this one black guy who used to sue cops in Oakland. And I was a, I was a, a, a fight the power, a, a, a radical black activist. I make no apology for it. Because in, in, when I was in my 20s, they were building prisons coast to coast. They were, you know, it was right after Rodney King. Mm -hmm. I make no apologies for it. I was on the left side of Pluto and I would have been further left back and figured it out. And I've never hidden that. I've never apologized for it. If you don't like what my politics were, then the politics for the big people should have been different. Y'all's politics was putting us in prison. We don't have to like that. We don't have to go along with that. But now I'm in the White House. So what did you do? What did they find? So they found that I was a left-wing uh, activist. They found that I've been in, uh, you know, socialist collectives. They found I was, you know, protested su suing cops. Uh, they they made up some stuff as well. But in those days, you can be controversial being in the White House. This is Barack Obama's White House, mm. and we were trying to be as clean. queaky clean. And so Obama's people said, you know, we want to stay. We want you to stay. We want to fight. I said, no, you don't. Want, you don't want me to stay. I'm gonna tell you right now. If you think this little stuff that they've found. Is, is, is trouble. Wait till they really start digging. <laughs> I was at every protest you can imagine. So I said, no. <laughs> that's him. That's <laughs> exactly. him again. <laughs> that's him again. That's him again. No, oh, that's you him got again. the Million Man March? I was not. I didn't. I was. I had the flu. Obama was, all right. I think he was. Yeah, I think he yeah, was. I that, the they, they made that a big deal. Exactly. He's at the Million Man March. I'm like, exactly. a million people was there. Exactly. <laughs> What's, the What's the odds? What's the odds? Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, I had the flu. I, I, I couldn't go. But so, um, so Glenn Beck used that 
to just, I mean, they did, I think, 17, 18 shows on me alone. It's like propaganda. Propaganda. To make propaganda. you like an extreme exactly. left wing <laughs> communist. Exactly. Exactly. Communist, black nationalist, hate police, solar hate panels. Hate <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this is, this is the guy that has Obama's ear. Just trying to give us everything. good energy, man. Exactly. They just made, they made a exactly. I'm just trying to give like solar panels to the hood. And, like now I'm like, you know, a, a, I'm like Stalin or Mao. So, um, so I resigned. Uh, and, you know, it was tough, man. I was, you know, that was one of the toughest things I ever did because, of course, you want to be there with him, with Obama. Of course, you want to, all your dreams have come true. You're at this pinnacle of power, and the next day, you're gone. And I'll tell you something. We had Blackberries in those days. And when I was working for Obama, my, my phone would literally just buzz. I mean, I couldn't eat dinner. I couldn't I'd be in the shower, come back, 30 messages. I mean, it was just buzz, 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 buzz. And um, and after I resi re re resigned from the White House, I was like, <laughs> "It's over." It, it, is my is my battery dead? <laughs> like, no number. Who this? I'm like, "Is my battery? Did they cut me off? Did we pay my AT and T?" I mean, nobody reaching out. And uh, so Glenn Glenn Beck uh, literally called, said, "You know, I have like, scalp number one. Van Jones is scalp number one. I'm going to get more." What's scalp number one? Like I took a scalp. Oh, like yeah, like he like, told you that? No, he said on the air to the oh, whole world. Okay. Okay, okay. <laughs> and oh. so, so wow. when my name, so now I'm talking to Jeff Bezos about my life. When this story comes up, somebody who knows said, "Yeah," and Glenn Beck, like you know, Screw took him out. Blah blah. blah. Yeah, yeah. And I said, "Hold on," I said, "Glenn Beck is a friend of mine." And Bezos said, "What?" I said, "Yeah, he's a, he's he's a friend of mine." He said, "How is that possible?" I said, "Look, I had small children at that time, and I didn't want them to feel." that there was some mean guy named Glenn Beck that hurt their daddy because we don't agree on stuff. So I reached out to, 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 to Beck. And I said, look, I don't care about the public stuff, but you and I need to sit down and talk man to man. And he was shocked to hear from me, and we sat down. And uh, we, you know, he acknowledged that, uh, that, you know, of course, a couple of years had gone by. He acknowledged that um, uh, he would have handled it differently. Uh, if he had to do it over again. And that was enough for me. So I'm telling this story to Bezos. And Bezos said, you know, I don't think I could do that. I really don't think I could do that. He said, I need to get to know you. He said, that's, he said, that's, that's, that's very interesting to me. And so we just started talking about redemption. I said, listen, man, I go into prisons where... Young brothers have literally killed other young brothers. And I don't block their blessing from me based on that. They've sold poison to our children. And I, if I'm going to relate to you based on the worst thing you ever did, we're going to be stuck here forever. I say to those same, same young brothers, tomorrow's more important than yesterday. What are we going to do? How can you be great? What... Now, if I can do, go into prisons and do that, then I look like a big phony. If I then say, but only if you look just like me, only, uh-uh, no. You voted for Trump, I disagree with you. You sold drugs, I disagree with you. You're on right-wing radio, I disagree with you. But beyond the disagreement, there's something in you that God loves, because you wouldn't be here otherwise. Mm. There's something in me that God loves, I wouldn't be here otherwise. So if I'm going to say I'm a person of faith, a man of faith, if I'm going to raise children, you know, in this faith, then I need to be able to show up. It says love your enemies. It didn't say love your homeboys. It said love your enemies. 
It says, pray for those who despitefully use you. It doesn't say pray for your mama. They know you're going to pray for your mama. You got to put that in the Bible. It says, pray for those who despitefully use you. Now, if that's the faith, and I'm on a public stage, and somebody does something that's despicable like Beck did, and I can't forgive him, and I'm not willing to reach out or whatever, then, you know, it, I can't claim my faith. And so it created this relationship. And then between me and Bezos, not based on religion, but just based on he was just shocked. That, that's, that I- Earners, what's going on? Listen, EYLU is relaunching, revamping, retooling. That's right, we're creating a new educational experience that's more expansive. Shari, tell me what we got. Yes, 2023. We got a lot in store, a lot planned for you guys. So you know that EYLU already includes monthly financial planning calls with me, book club calls with Troy, real estate calls with MG the mortgage guy, access to the home buying blueprint, volume one and volume two. Part of the revamp will include 27 local chapters from across the United States, live interactive teaching, hands-on, not just pre-recorded videos, plus 15 brand new curriculums. The biggest just got bigger. Head over to EYLUniversity.com. That's E-Y-L-U-N-I-V-E-R-S-I-T-Y.com. See you there. I'm serious about this stuff. And then Lauren Sanchez, his partner, uh, you know, she, she's, she's Latina. She comes from the same communities that I'm talking about. And I think it really moved her to see somebody like for real fighting. And by the way, because I didn't hold the, all these Republicans in a negative light, I was able to work with them later on, a bunch of other stuff. And anyway, you know, pass bills, stuff like that. So at the end of the day, how did I get the $100 million? At a black woman therapist, a black woman, uh, Felicia Horowitz, who got me in the door, a Jewish woman, Diane von Furstenberg, who brought me over to Jeff, and a Latina, Lauren Sanchez, who said, we need to do something with Van. So like, I just talked about, but do something. And so that's the other thing that people need to talk more about. It's often women behind the scenes mm-hmm. that are making a way for, 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 for men, that are opening doors, that are helping out, that are seeing more in you than you see in yourself, that are giving you these opportunities. And then, okay, well, now you see Van Jones and Jeff Bezos shaking hands on stage. There's a whole lot that went on behind the scenes to make that even possible. And then also doing that inner work meant that when I had the conversation, I wasn't having a conversation about, oh, I'm a victim, I was discriminated against, I was mistreated. I, w- I had a conversation about possibility and redemption and forgiveness, which I think is the universal language of love <laughs> uh, that can create all kinds of miracles. It certainly did in my life. So, so what, what's the goal for the fund now, right? The hundred million is there. And I would, you know, especially in our community, mm-hmm. when anything is awarded, there's a microscope. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. When is it going to happen? Mm-hmm. How fast can it happen? Right? Where I don't think with the chef and Dolly Parton, mm-hmm. it's going to be a similar situation. True. So, do you feel that that type of pressure mm-hmm. or angst when it comes to it? And, and what are the plans for it? Look, I, I immediately it just almost had to turn my phone off uh, because so many people, you know, they they didn't bum rush to your point. They didn't they didn't bum rush the chef <laughs> or Dolly, <laughs> but they definitely bum rush me. Um, I want to use the money to disrupt the incarceration industry as an investor, as a philanthropist. Like I, I'm going, I'm, I'm changing even before your eyes, you know, from being um, an advocate, a, a lawyer, a not-for-profit guy. 
I see myself now more as being somebody, I'm not trying to move Congress, I'm trying to move capital. And I'm trying to move capital into companies that can disrupt the prison industry, that can disrupt the pollution in our communities, that can disrupt poverty. And so, you know, the plans for the, for the money, you know, there's, you know, I think we did an article about it, about it recently, but, you know, we built an incubator uh, to help companies that want to disrupt the incarceration industry. The incarceration industry is an $80 billion a year industry, 90 billion, 90 billion every year just to lock us up. There's zero alignment of financial incentives for anybody in that industry to help us. It's only to help hurt us. So for instance, if you're a warden of a prison, public, private, I don't care. You have 10 guys in, in your, your care for 10 years, $100,000 a piece. I'm not good at math, that's a lot of money. Okay, so you spent that much money locking these 10 guys up. If they leave on Friday and God forbid all 10 of them kill somebody and they're back in your care Monday morning, you don't get fired. Nobody asks you, wait a minute, you spent how many millions of dollars on these guys and they didn't do any better than that? You don't get fired at all. Or better case scenario, suppose a year from now, all 10 of them win a Nobel Peace Prize. You don't get a, a, a raise. You don't get a promotion. You don't get a thank you. There's no alignment of financial incentives at all. Mm. You're in charge of all these people and no matter what happens, you're going to have a job. Uh, and in fact, you'll get more money if they keep coming back. Right. So that's an incarceration industry. Well, hold on a second. Now that I have more of a billionaire perspective, I'm looking at this industry. I say, well, hold on a second. Uh, they disrupted the taxi industry with Uber and Lyft. Different technology, different model. They disrupted uh, hotels with Airbnb, different technology, different model. They disrupted all of retail with Amazon.com, different technology, different model. They disrupted the whole uh, uh, dirty energy uh, thing with solar panels and electric vehicles and wind turbines, different technology, different model. How come nobody has tried to disrupt the incarceration industry? The industry that does the most damage to our community, that makes the most money off of our pain and suffering, that continues to produce over and over again, repeat customers through a revolving door, and nobody's tried to disrupt it. Nobody's spent a penny to disrupt it. Nobody's created one incubator to put companies together that can say, give me that sister, give me that brother. I'll educate them. I'll give them better nutrition. Nobody? That's my job. So how did, what kind of companies would disrupt okay. the system? Okay, so for instance, uh, we built an incubator. There's a company called Rasa um, that we uh, invested in. Um, and we can, we can do that because we just made it as a program-related investment. So I'm not making money off of it, but the fund, you can return money to the fund. So this is not Van Jones making money. But this company called Rasa, very simple. Uh, take something like prison, like expungement of prison records, okay, in the states where that's allowed. Well, if you, if you get your record expunged, you can get any job in the world you want to. If you can't get your record expunged, you're going to be stuck in a low level. Which is why a lot of guys wind up going back to what they were doing before because they can't make no money. So that's a part of the revolving door. Well, why don't people take advantage of expungement? Because you have to hire a lawyer and spend three to $4,000 to get your record expunged in the states where that's allowed. Which means rich folk get their records expunged and poor folk don't. So we put money into a company that has an app that can get your record expunged for $500 because they just basically you know, use AI and just automate the whole thing. And so we, by reducing the cost way down, uh, now way more people can get their records expunged. And so, but nobody wanted to bet on that company. Like, what are you talking about? Like, is that even a thing? There's a massive market there. 
but nobody wanted to invest in that company. So, so, so that's a company now. They, they will, uh, they're, they're practically printing money now because somebody can change their whole life. Even, you know, you can do a GoFundMe now and be able to do that uh, in the states where they're, where they're operating. There's another one. It used to be called uh, Con Connect. It's basically LinkedIn, AI-powered LinkedIn for formerly incarcerated people. Because what happens is you come home, they say, okay, go get a job. Well, you only have so much, everybody's got only so much energy in their little battery. Even the Energizer Bunny eventually runs out. How many times can you go and apply for a job and get no, 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 before you give up? But with this company, they, they changed the name recently, but it was initially called Kind Connect if you want to Google it. Um, they use AI to figure out very quickly, okay, if you got a home invasion thing on your record, you're probably not going to be doing cable installing, okay? So there's certain things you're just not going to do. So they figure out very in, in, instantly, based on your record, based on what you want to do, where, you know, where are, are they hiring? Where, and so it radically accelerates the process by which people leave j- jail and get a job. Um, but because it turns out, formerly incarcerated people, if they get a job, they're very loyal. So it's actually to the benefit of the employer to get people from that population because they don't feel they can just go quit, quit and go get 12 more jobs. So you're going to save a bunch of money hiring people coming home because you're not going to have to replace that person. Mm-hmm. So it's a benefit all the way around, but using technology to get a win, win, win for the employer. So these companies uh, did not have an incubator, didn't have that kind of help. So we built that for them. So people are like, well, what are you doing with the money? I said, guys, I could just pass the money out and just give everybody a book bag. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like <laughs> turkeys. You know what I mean? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. The give back. You know what I mean? And, and everybody, oh, it's so wonderful or whatever. I can take a bunch of pictures with a bunch of kids or whatever. But then the next year, the money's gone and the kids need another, another book bag. It's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. Yeah. And so. And we but, have plenty of those. And, we, and by the way, there are other people that can do that. And so I took a, I've taken a lot of heat from people like, well, what's he doing with the money? What's he doing with the money? The good thing is. I'm 55, I'm not 25. I've had 30 years to watch a lot of stuff fail. Some of which I was doing that we thought was gonna have a good outcome, didn't have a good outcome. And it's good to be in my 50s now. I'm not working on my resume. I've got a great resume. I'm working on my obit. I'm working on my obit. What did I do that really made a difference? Whether I got the credit for it or not. What did I do that, like my father, you know, he really made a difference. I still can't go home without somebody coming up to me in the convenience store to Walmart. You Willie Jones' son? He used to beat my ass with a paddle. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I mean, the type of difference maker we need. Yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> so for me, like, I take this very, very seriously. Um, if there's some way for us to, so then if we bet on these companies and they do well, we get the money back, we can bet on another one. Yeah. I'm trying to build. So it's like a VC model. VC model. That's what you. That's what you're implementing. VC. How model. much money have you have you distributed so far? We still have more than half the capital. Yeah. Okay. We still have more than half the capital. And is, does it start every year? It's the same investment, or is it just a hundred across no, the board? No, I, I have a hundred lump sum. Lump sum, and then and if I haven't deployed all the capital, all the initial capital in ten years, which now is in eight years, then it goes back. So basically, so basically, here's a hundred million dollars. You have you have ten years to figure it out. Um, is the money growing? Is it an investment or is it just? Well, we'll see. I'm, I'm saying like the fifty that you haven't spent. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's, yeah, that's that's all in, 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 in you know 
stocks and bonds, that type of stuff. But the stuff that we're, we're making bets. Yeah. And listen. So all your money is going into companies, into private companies. Mm, You're not putting money into like well programs. That, that, that's the center of the of the bullseye. But my real game I'm playing has to do with how can I manipulate financial incentives to get better outcomes for our community. That's the real game I'm playing. So if I can figure out financial incentives for people to use technology to help people come home from jail, I'll play that game. But here's another game, which is not a business. There's a brother named Pastor Carl Day in Philadelphia. Yeah. I mean, they call it Philadelphia for you know a reason. And it's not like it was when I was coming up. People aren't killing each other over turf and drugs, like, you know, Percocets. Like the, the, the drug trade is not what it used to be. It's pills and Percocets. It's not, people aren't making, people are killing each other over just disses. Oh, you know, somebody posted something on, a, on an Instagram or TikTok and, 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 and so there's a lot of just random chaotic violence because people just don't have much direction. And I, I met this guy, Pastor Carl Day, and he's just a genius. I mean, he's, you know, formerly incarcerated, you know, found, you know, God in prison, came out. He's like the pastor of the hood. And when, when you know, gunfire goes off, grandmoms will call him before they call the cops. Where's he at? North Philly? Uh, all over Philly. In fact, in, in fact, he's one of the few people that can be all over Philly. Mm. And that's the crazy thing about him. Like he's, like, he's not turfed out anywhere. Everybody respects him. And so I was talking about what he was doing and he's, he, he educated me. You know, he said all these, a lot of these anti-violence programs, they're not even touching the kids who are violent. They might have 500 kids in the program. These are like B students. <laughs> you know what I mean? They haven't been violent their whole life. And then they're hiring people who went to college with whiteboards and stuff who also are not violent. So these big programs are basically getting B students after school activities and paying off student loans for, for college graduates. But if a truly violent kid walked in there, they call the cops. You know what I mean? So he's like, we need to go to school for this. He's like, he's like, hey, listen, it's like I'm, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying to go see my grandma and stuff. But, you know, so it's not. It's not honest, but this dude is talking to the actual cats that actually have their hands on guns, who are actually doing stuff that everybody's scared of. And he said, if I could just have a hundred days with these guys, I could help them turn their lives around. I said, well, what do you need? He goes, I need to be able to pay them. I said, what do you mean pay them? He goes, well, look, these college kids are getting paid on violence. Everybody's getting paid on violence except for the violent people. <laughs> we want to have $1,000 spent to talk about, $100,000 or a $1 million to talk about the people talking about the people talking about the kids. And nobody's talking to the kids but me. I said, you know what? Let me make a bet on you. So we wrote a substantial check for him to start a pilot to prove that at a lower dollar amount, he could save more lives. So what he did was, he just went to the guys, he knew who they were, said, I'll pay you to come off the corner. I'll pay you to sit down here with me every day. We're gonna go through this 100-day plan. I'm gonna, we're gonna do all this self-improvement, anger, all this sort of stuff, and you can get an actual job. And the crazy thing was, you know, one of the guys was like, I can't get a job. And Pastor said, what do you mean you can't get a job? He goes, I can't get a job. Well, you, know, you got criminal record. Like, no, I can't get a job. What are you talking about? He goes, if you got me a job at Subway, my ops would drive by and see me in there and they'd drive back by and shoot the whole place up. I can't get a job. What are you talking about? Pastor said, warehouses. What if we got you a job from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. in a warehouse? You get paid that way. The guy said, I'll do it. 
88 percent well first of all 97 percent of the kids who went to that program mm -hmm. uh are employed or have their own llc's 100 uh, percent of them registered to vote uh they all have their driver's licenses or whatever the three percent is the one kid that got killed okay so it's really life or death like that but what we were able to demonstrate was incentivize peace if these are the people who are having the problems, put the money in their pocket, pull them into a program, help them out, get them a job that's appropriate. Now these folks are, they're employed, they have their own businesses, they're using their leadership in a different way. And it was radically less expensive than these other programs that literally are just counting the number of noses of people that they talk to. We had 100 contacts with, with troubled youth. Contacts? Yeah. That's not saving any lives. So, so, I'm, so again, what's the game I'm playing? I'm trying to figure out, okay, can I change the financial incentives on the street? Incentivize you to, to, to invest in yourself. Don't yell at you and tell you what you should do. Incentivize you to do it financially. It's like somebody said something like, you know, like a scared straight program. Yeah. And the idea is to take kids to jail and to scare them right. so they don't go to jail. But it's like, instead of trying to scare somebody, why don't you try to inspire them? Yeah. So instead of taking them to jail, take yeah. them to corporate, take them to Africa, take them to different things where they can actually expand their horizons and, like you said, mentorship and yeah. have provide, as opposed to taking them to the worst place possible yeah. as a as a deterrent to 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 not go. We and once you said, and like you said, most of those kids that are going to scare straight <laughs> aren't even kids that's going to jail anyway. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they came to our middle school and it was like a permission slip. I'm like, like a field trip. I'm not going to go home and ask my parents, <laughs> can I go to jail? <laughs> this is just not going to work. Yeah, it's not going to work at all. Uh, and one of the percentages that are very important mm -hmm. and, and that you ran off, because the program you just described was beat the block. Yes. Beat the block. 50% of the, the, the people are starting their own business. Yes. So that changes it. And so now I'm looking at this as an ecosystem that you've built, right? We got the Reform Alliance, mm -hmm. you got the fund, which is creating an incubator for technology. And I got a question about that. Sure. But you also have another system that's keeping people from going to the system. Exactly. And so on your vision board, is this how you planned it? Or is, are these things happening and you're, I can improve on this, I can change this, I can change this? Um, I'm learning as I go. I didn't understand a lot of things, man. Um, like that's the question a business person would ask, mm -hmm. right? And I didn't know to think that way. Um, you know, when you come out of kind of rapid response mode, grassroots mode for 30 years, you just kind of like, oh, here's the option, here's the option. You aren't thinking in a business way. And so in the two years that I've had the grant, I've actually realized, okay, some stuff I'm doing doesn't make sense. Like that's not the right way. I've had to bring in different advisors. Um, so I wish I could say, you know, if I was a dishonest person, I'd say, yes, you know, I had this master strategy. I was going to build this ecological. And it's like, no, it was like I met some people that I thought were frankly deserving of a bigger bet than they were getting. And then I learned now, though, you know, there's a machine that needs to get built. It's going to take 10 years to build. It's going to take a lot more than the little, you know, money I have. Um but I, I'm beginning to see a kind of a jobs, not jails machine that needs to get built. And there's a way that there can be some philanthropic stuff. There can be some VC stuff. There can be some enterprise. There can be some technology. All the stuff I was doing with protest signs and lawsuits and, and voting campaigns um, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I think I can better do in my 50s and 60s with capital and building a machine 
that can take some of those young folks out of uh, Pastor uh, uh, Carl's Beat the Block program. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could move them? Okay, now you're not in trouble anymore. You start your own little company. Now we can put your company in, the, in an incubator. Mm-hmm. Now we take take the incubator. Now we can pass you up the line. Okay, now you're going to Sun Valley. Okay, now you're going to Davos. Right, that's what I want to do. Yeah. Well, let me, uh, let me can I just follow up really quick mm-hmm. because it happens in Philly, mm-hmm. but it also can happen in New York. Yes, it can happen in Baltimore. Yes, once we get the pilot. Right, once the pilot is, the incubator part is interesting because I'm, uh, and this is something that we've seen from private equity and VC, finding companies that pipeline. we can actually put in the pipeline. Yeah. What's the challenges there, right? Are we find, Because a lot of times we, we want to invest in people that look like us, yes. but we have to have people that look like us that are creating the companies that we can invest in. Yeah. So it's the duality there, is, it becomes a struggle, right? Yeah, as an investor, you know, the pipeline problem is the biggest problem. Like, how do you find how do you find great companies that somebody hadn't already put all the money into? You? Like, you got to find a great company right before they're going to prove themselves. You get in, mm. uh, and then you got to be able to support those portfolio companies so that they can actually meet their full potential. And the thing is, once you put the money in there, you know it's kind of like different between dating and being married. <laughs> when you're dating, you're getting all the good news. Your diligence process, you're doing all you can to try to figure out what's really going on. Once you put the money in, then you find out what's really happening. You're like, oh, Lord, like, we got a bunch of problems to fix and clean up. We need to bring. And so I'm learning, man, like how to how, how you do this. But um, part of the pipeline problem that uh, is solved for us on the, on this incubator, because it's a, a, a sister fund called the Decarceration Fund. And they've already uh, uh, diligence, I think, 100 plus companies. Uh, they wound up investing in about five. We invested in, in, in four. Um, so we're, right now we're kind of surfing along the back of their diligence process. Mm-hmm. Um, but because we can bring capital, then, you know, it's a good partnership there. But these are the type of problems that you get into. Very few social change entrepreneurs like myself have had access to this much unrestricted capital to play these games with. Um, to, to, to make these kinds of, of, of uh, uh, investments and, and, and moves. Um, and so uh, I'm learning a lot. Can we talk politics for a minute? Um, mm-hmm. So super PACs is something that I, I think is very interesting. And I think I was having a conversation with one of my friends and, you know, I feel like amongst young people, there's a strong disbelief of the political system because mm-hmm. they've seen black people vote for a long period of time, mostly democratic mm-hmm. and not much has really changed or the social economic situation has definitely not changed. It probably even has gotten worse. And so a lot of people have the frame of mind that voting is a waste of time. Mm-hmm. And I was saying that I don't agree with that, but I understand it because just voting just for the sake of voting is not beneficial with no economic power put behind it. So we interviewed a congressman and he was saying that when he first got elected, from the first day he got elected all the way to the time that we interviewed him, he's gotten calls every single day from super PACs. Everybody from the Israeli super PAC to mm-hmm. the pro-abortion uh, super PAC to the pro-life super Everybody's giving him NRA, everybody, right? And he's like, the only people that he's never gotten a phone call is a black super PAC. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there is any black super PACs. So... Talk about that because I don't think that people are even fully educated to understand the importance of that and the economics behind the politics, which is actually, in my opinion, more important than any other aspect of it. Um, 
So this this is complicated because there's two there's two different ways that politicians get approached. They get approached based on issues. Um, stop police brutality. Uh, we don't believe in abortion. That's issues. And they get approached based on interest. Okay. I'm a coal company. I need you to pass laws to support the coal industry. My, my economic interest. Um, I'm a solar company. I need you to pass stuff to, to support the solar company based on my economic interest as a solar manufacturer. Um, for most communities, most ethnic groups, frankly, they spend most of their money on the second one. <laughs> like, they go and they say, pass tax breaks to help my business. <laughs> tax, pass regulations that will help my business. <laughs> That's what 80% of politics is. We don't have a coherent strategy as black people to know what industries we're trying to protect. So for instance, suppose we decided, well, you know, black people are going to own all of AI-related entertainment. That's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on that. We're going to launch companies based on that. We're going to make sure that our entertainers and our, our athletes are all built into that. That's our industry is entertainment meets AI. We're going to build the Disney of that. We're going to build the, the, the Motown of that. Okay, now when you call a politician, you're saying, look... <laughs> pass this law just to protect this industry, I'm going to make a ton more money than I would have, and I'll give you a donation. Mm -hmm. The fact that no black people can do that gives you a sense of how bad our strategy is. Mm. Like, you have to pick. Remember when the, I hope I don't piss anybody off, but you remember when the Ethiopians, like, every time you went to a parking garage, it was Ethiopians? I don't know if that was, that was just in California. But there was a time when they had just targeted like parking garages. Well, it was like the, ho the hotel and motel industry with Indians. Yeah. Mm. You pick something and then you dominate that and you protect that politically. Mm. And then you start putting your kids into you know, different schools and whatever you branch out from that. Our problem is we never have been able to figure out how to dominate what, where we show up. So we show up right now in the entertainment industry. That's really where we show up the strongest. In sports. In sports, yeah. yeah. So sports, music, entertainment, film. That whole thing. So all of our ability, so the LeBron comes out of that, Jay Z comes out of that, Tyler Perry comes out of that, Oprah comes out of that. That's where we are, have been able to dominate. But there are other sectors and other industries that we could dominate um, if we decide to do it. So I just want to point out the mere fact that we're talking about a super PAC for issues, for black issues, and not a super PAC for black business, I would say. So it's not a super PAC for reparations. It should be a super PAC for the music industry to yeah. protect the artist. That's more beneficial than trying to do a social I would say, issue. I, I would say that we should at least have a double-barreled approach. We need to do a better job of getting government to help our businesses. That's all I'm saying. Government should be helping our businesses. Government should be helping our entrepreneurs. Our, and you know, not saying that people haven't thought about that and tried is difficult, but that's going to give you more of a return on investment. That said, issues matter too. And we should have, we should organize our money better. Um, and I believe uh, Charles Phillips and some other guys were working on that the last election cycle to try to organize black money around black issues. Um, it's true. If a politician, need, they need two things. They need money and votes. Black people show up saying, we'll give you votes. White people show up saying, we'll give you money. <laughs> and so. So they use, here's my thing. I'm a registered independent. Good. I lean towards democratic social mm -hmm. issues, pre-liberal. Mm -hmm. 
I lean towards Republicans when it comes to the economy. Yeah. I personally feel that the Democratic Party has used black people to get votes. Because like you said, we're, we have a, a, a lot of numbers mm-hmm. in key states. So that they, they pander to the votes. They go to like churches and sure. they do the whole thing. But then that's it. It's like, we just get the votes and that's it. Like you said, other groups will come with money. Mm-hmm. So we, we need your votes to get elected, mm-hmm. but then we're going to actually cater our policies to, to the people money. that's giving us the money. Mm-hmm. Everybody's kind of in on it. The people that's giving them the money probably know that as well. Only people that's kind of left out in the whim are just black people because they're just left hopelessly voting over and over again because it's been drilled in our head like this is our pathway to succeed. It's like going to college, right? This is our pathway to succeed until you realize, damn, well, I have a liberal arts degree. I'm unemployed. I'm 30 years old and I have $100,000 student loans. This didn't work out the way that they told me it would. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Look, I mean, I'm going to shock you and say I don't disagree with anything you just said. Um, some stuff is, uh, frankly, white racism, um, that gives us certain outcomes, but some stuff is bad black strategy. Like, and it's sometimes hard to know where one starts and the other stops. We should be much more strategic, um, in how we vote and who we support. Um, when you create a situation where, one party can just take you for granted and the other party can just write you off, then you lose leverage. And so it's important that we actually, and you know, Diddy and other people, I'm not the only one that said said this, it's important that we are a lot smarter. Um, What I will say is, as bad as things are for us, if we stop voting, they will get worse. That's why I said, you don't vote to get what you want, you need business for that. But if you don't vote, you can lose what you've got. And so we do have to continue to, to, to vote. Now, listen, people want to vote for Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Green Party. I don't care who you vote for. But you do need to vote because my view is people say it's a waste of time. It's not a waste of a lot of time. It's like a waste of an hour or two, which you're probably going to use. You probably spend an hour on your social media today. So it's not a waste of that much time. Um, uh, but I think it's important. But here's what I would I, I want us to have a strategy. That's what's missing. And the strategy can't always be about who's going to be the president or the mayor. That's only going to affect so much. It can get a lot worse for you if you have the wrong one. But it's not going to get that much better for you if you have the right one if you don't have other stuff in place. That's why you guys are so important. We have to put other stuff in place. And by the way, if we build a black business class, it's going to be a lot more uh, black uh, conservatives because you're going to have a lot black black business people are going to want to vote for the party that's more for, for business. So we're going to have a little bit more political diversity in the community, and that's okay. But what I... What I but here's the thing I'm concerned about. Let's go back to what I said at the very beginning. If we're going to have a new human civilization with all this new technology being built by people who don't look like us, trying to solve problems that are not our problems, making money off of stuff that you know is never going to come back to our community, that's a big problem. That's a big problem. That's a multi-trillion dollar problem that we can't vote our way out of. We're going to have to... We're going to have to um, uh, nothing good happens for black people on accident. Nothing good happens to black people accidentally. Um, it requires planning. It requires persistence. It requires purpose. And in this century, the last century you can vote and protest and maybe you'll get something done. In this century, you're going to have to launch businesses. You're going to have to attract capital that's going to use this technology to help us either get us more money or solve our problems. 
That's what I'm trying to do. We have problems with the criminal justice system. I want to launch businesses. I want to move capital that can disrupt that whole industry. I want all 90 billion that's be supposedly being spent to keep our community safe. I want it in the pockets of black entrepreneurs who actually can keep our community safe. Like, and until that happens, I'm not going to stop. That's different than saying I want to, uh, I want to outlaw police brutality. Mm-hmm. It's a different conversation. I'm going to build a set of business interests to fight the other business interests and then use government to support my business interests over theirs. We've never done that before. And so if we can take our political genius, if we can take our entertainers and, 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 and our cultural influencers and then put the business people at the table, erase the chalkboard of how we used to do it and design that strategy, we can win. Yeah. And voting will be a part of it. Thanks. It just won't be the only, it's, it's, it'll be a smaller part of it. Than it used to be. Extremely impressive. My last question. Just, I just want just a final thought before you go, because I know we're going to close it up a little bit. You talked about legacy. Mm-hmm. You came into it wanting to be greater than your dad. Mm. Tough mission. Yeah, impossible. Right? impossible. Impossible mission. But you are creating a legacy for yourself. Mm. Uh, and so I'm, I'm wondering, as you're navigating through the space, you did nonprofit, now you're in business. You've been in some rooms that most people will never be in. What are some of the biggest lessons that you learn now in the world of business? Hmm. I'm worthy. I'm worthy. I had a lot of um, shame. Self-doubt? Imposter syndrome? Shame. Shame for what? My dad was tough on me. He was tough. Uh, I admire him. I'll never catch him. Uh, He was tough on me. And I was sensitive. You know, nerdy, goofy, bookish. And he was like a big, you know, (laughs) like you do. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it made me feel bad about myself. I didn't think I was good enough to, to, to be his son. And so I realized I probably spent 30 years trying to overcompensate and improve and improve and, and do and do. And, and, you know, just trying to just to catch him, but also to impress him, you know, hey, you know, I may not have been a football player and this type of stuff, but like, I'm, I'm all right. I'm, I found out later that he was always saying good stuff behind my back. Mm. That the whole time he liked me, yeah. but he just thought that just cussing me out and pushing me and telling me that that, that was the way you're supposed to like make a drill it. sergeant. Yeah. Like a drill sergeant. Yeah. He comes out of the military. That's how he's supposed to make a young man. But it hurt my feelings, man. Yeah, look at me. There's value in what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so I spent a lot of time trying to to prove something to him, trying to prove something to myself. But inside, I I, I didn't feel good about myself. I felt, they call it imposter syndrome, but I think that's become too much of a buzzword. I just felt a lot of shame. Uh, And so then I'm in these different places and spaces and I'm not, um, I'm anxious, man. Like I would go back to my hotel room and I'd just cry. You know, I'd go back to my hotel room and have like panic attacks. You know, like, did I do okay? Did I I say this the right way? Did I say that the right way? You know, was that right? Was that wrong? I, I mean, just beating myself up. Uh, not enjoying any of it, you know? So I'll be on TV or I get a bestseller or Emmy, all these different things, never enjoyed a day of it. Mm. I would feel 
it wasn't enough or, or it wasn't just, I mean, just a lot of self-flagellation. Getting that hundred million dollars brought even more problems because then people, you know, want stuff from you. But it did let me take a breath. And I noticed all these guys are getting therapy. All these guys are, you know, using psychedelic therapy, this therapy, that therapy. They the Landmark Forum, Hoffman Institute, Polyvagal, uh, IFS, Internal Family System. All these guys and women were spending time just on themselves trying to make themselves better, trying to make themselves, trying to deal with their mommy, daddy issues. And then suddenly they would get to a point where they could just take off. And I realized, you know, I was, I was going to put myself in an early grave because you have insurmountable opportunities, but you also, also you have insurmountable obstacles. You can also have insurmountable opportunities. You guys are going through that now. The door's just opening and opening and opening and opening. And that can stress you out. And that can also bring a lot of haters and a lot of criticism. And I was going to be in an early grave, man. And so, you know, this summer, I just feel really blessed because I was able to get some therapeutic help that was useful. I was able to find some, my way back to, to prayer, uh, meditation. I started getting in the gym. You can't tell, but I've been, <laughs> uh, and, um, um, and I would start there. You know, we're worthy. We're worthy to be in these rooms. Uh, we're worthy to move capital. We're worthy to imagine whole industries. We're worthy to imagine that every black neighborhood could be Wakanda, that we could drive in, you know, through, you know, cultural, uh, you know, cultural renaissance, but also technology transfer and investment. We could make every black neighborhood into Wakanda with the best technology in the world. Every black kid could have an AI tutor better than Harvard MIT for free. Uh, we get we, all of these things. We're worthy to have those dreams and we're worthy to fight for them and, and not just fight for them, just to damn manifest them and say, this is what is going to be in my community. And uh, that's what's available, I think, as an entrepreneur. So much of politics is about the past and the present and the present, you know, reparations is about the past, you know, redistribution it's about the present. Oh, we have an income inequality. We got to tax you to give money to her so that she can. And it's all about the past and the present. That's politics, either reparations or redistribution. But the future has not been written. Prince used to say the future is worth fighting for. The future hasn't been written. Why can't these technologies be used for us? Why can't we own the future? Why can't we own that? Why can't we build that? We have the genius. We have the creativity. We have the, the passion. We have the magic. And now they're giving these magical tools. And this AI stuff is damn near magic. Well, shoot, let's take magical people, use these magical tools and build a magical future. That's what I'm committed to. Um, the stuff I've learned has to do with math is not much. You guys are better at that than I am. <laughs> uh, the stuff that I've learned to do with management is not much. You guys are better at that than I am. But the stuff that I've learned about meaning the stuff I've learned about me is priceless, man. And I'm just glad to be here talking all about it. You're worthy, my, my dear Real, real quick mm -hmm. political question. You can answer this in, in one minute. Mm -hmm. Electoral college seems very stupid to me yes. um, at this point in time. And I don't fully understand why it's still even in existence. It helps the Republicans, obviously, a lot more than Democrats. Um, why we still have the electoral, electoral college and is 
can there ever be a time where you can just get rid of that and just have a one vote? You vote for this thing. If you want him to become president, it goes. Not if I live in New York, <laughs> my vote doesn't even count. If I vote Republican because it's a Democratic state or Wyoming, vice versa. Um, it seems like every other country has kind of just revolutionized that and just make it very easy. What, can you just give like a 30-second explanation on why okay. this is still in existence? Well, because just um, it's hard to change the Constitution in any way that's going to help us. Um, but there is this thing called national popular vote where if enough state legislatures uh, pass pass a law that says they're going to d- give all their electoral votes, because they can, state legislature can give their electoral votes however they want to. So they all say, if enough of them say we're going to give our electoral votes to whoever wins the national popular vote, that's an end run around the Constitution because then they all say, well, look, you can all vote here if you want to, but whoever wins the national vote, that's who we're going to give our electoral college votes to. So there is a way to get it done. It's called national popular vote. You can Google that. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things in our politics that don't work. But what I notice about black folks is we're the most politically sophisticated people in the country. We know way more about You talk to the average black person in a barbershop knows way more about politics than the average white dude in a, in a bar. <laughs> I mean, massively more. Um, but we haven't tied that political sophistication to an economic strategy that will get us those trillions of dollars that are going to come down the, the pipe in the next 10 years. And if we can just take that, poli- we can't fix, fix some, some parts of the system, but we do have a stronghold. The reason I worry when people say don't vote, say, hold on a second. Let's use what we've got to get what we want. We've got politics. We've got entertainment. Don't give up. Don't throw that in a garbage can and then you have nothing. Use the politics. Use entertainment to get finance and technology. If you can use what you've got and then get what you want, you win the game. And honestly, the fact that we survived 400 years is bullshit and we're still here in a position where we can make those kind of moves now is a testament to our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents and their genius, their resolve. They passed us these batons. Don't throw them in the garbage can. Just use them better. That's all I'm saying. I got it. I got a yes or no. It's a yes or no question. Yeah. Maximum age limit on elected officials. <laughs> there should be some competency. <laughs> some competency. The deep test. freeze is crazy. It's crazy. It's getting crazy. The deep freeze is crazy. Yeah. Well, pleasure. Thank you. Anything you want to let the audience know before we go? You know, you guys, you know, 85 South just inspires the heck out of me. You guys just inspire the heck out of me because you came your own way. You came your own way. I came the establishment way to a degree. You know, I went to a fancy law school. I worked for the White House. I'm on CNN. If I was talking to anybody who's a young person today, I would say, do it your way. Don't do it my way because I'm climbing up institutions that are crumbling. Mm. Cable news is crumbling. Uh, you know, the political system is is is, is rickety. Um, like you said, uh, going to spend a gazillion dollars to go to private school, education, whatever, that may or may not ever pay off. But if you have a dream, if you believe in something, you can start where you guys started six years ago. You were coming to see me. <laughs> six years later, I'm coming to see you. It's like yeah, if, 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 okay, so if you if you want if you want to understand. Well, where the world is going, that right there will tell you. The last time I saw you, you were coming to see me, and I'm sitting here in the lobby trying to come to see you. So, that's all I got to say. There you have it, folks. Mama, I made it. Thank you guys. <laughs> Mama, I made it. <laughs> Thank you guys for rocking with us. We'll see you next week. Peace. Yeah. Peace. 
the Enhanced American Express Business Gold Card is designed to take your business further. It's packed with features and benefits like flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business, 24-7 support from a business card specialist trained to help with your business needs, and so much more. The Amex Business Gold Card, now smarter and more flexible. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.